Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Monsignor James Patrick Shea, President of the University of Mary, giving a talk entitled, The Dialogue of Faith and Reason. Monsignor Shea's talk was part of the Fidelity and Freedom Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Well, I know that some of you are expecting that I would speak upon the assigned topic, which has to do with ex corde ecclesiae, but the, the things that have happened to me in the last number of hours, I was in New York City and a plane slid off the runway in LaGuardia Airport, which is where I was supposed to fly out of. And so then I drove through what they call evidently in New York a, a snowstorm. The snow was barely coming down. It was just a little bit wet. And I spent hours on this small stretch of highway in New Jersey. <laughs> and the traffic was barely going anywhere. And so I'm, I'm going to give a different talk today entitled New Jersey, Recommendations for Winter Road Maintenance. <laughs> in North Dakota, this is our expertise. I was so sad to miss the presentations and the responses uh, to the presentations by Sister Susan, certainly by Father James and by His Excellency this morning, I was able to hear uh, a good half of his presentation, but it's good to be with you. It's wonderful to be with you for this celebration of the silver, silver Jubilee of the promulgation by St. John Paul II of the Apostolic Constitution Ex Corde Ecclesiae. For many reasons, I was honored by the invitation to come. Not least among these reasons is that this place on the Ohio River has been so notable in our country for the study and implementation of ex corde. Certainly, Franciscan University has taken a leadership role in terms of faithful Catholic higher education. I'm so pleased to be able to collaborate from time to time with Father Sean, your good president, who is a wonderful person and a great leader in the world of Catholic higher education. His predecessor, Father Terry as well, was great to work with. But from time to time, I pick up books and open them. Do you ever read the dedications that are written in books? Sometimes they're very moving, actually. And there was a book done some years ago by the philosopher Peter Kraft at Boston College. And it's kind of a summary of the catechism called Catholic Christianity. And if you open that book, the dedication reads to Father Michael Scanlon. If there are thank you lines in heaven, his will be one of the longest. And so certainly um, to be able to be here to speak about Ex Cordia Ecclesiae is a tremendous honor. Three of my younger brothers are alumni of Franciscan University and one of them is now a priest. I have an appointment this afternoon at the alumni office to go and see what their giving records are. <laughs> my brothers' lives have been enriched much by the education and formation they received here. I remember being here for commencement as a new priest and teacher and experiencing the profound joy of the baccalaureate mass, gazing out over a number, a great number of well-formed and well-educated students. And in the culmination of their studies together, I saw they were singing of one accord in praise to God. This made a lasting impression on me as a vision of education in faith and reason, which is the great topic we take up in our present symposium. One has the sense that ex corde has been received in some quarters as a church document which provides a number of interesting insights, but which gets in the way of serious intellectual work. Or it may be admired as the work of a pope who was also a saint, and so it holds the formula for a vibrant devotional life for the university community in the midst of the serious work of the academy. But when I call to mind what my brothers experienced here, when I remember my own undergraduate years at the Catholic University of America, and especially when I think of what I witness in our students at the University of Mary, I'm moved by evidence of an awakening which is not simply spiritual, but which is one of genuine intellectual discovery. Ex Corde indeed points to this by laying out a blueprint for a good university, whether it be Catholic or not. 
It provides us with a compelling and coherent vision ordered to intellectual excellence. Every university, every educational endeavor which goes beyond a very specific and limited purpose is animated by a set of principles concerning God, the human person, and nature, the natural world. This is not just to say that educational projects should be so animated. It is to claim that they always are, whether their practitioners recognize the fact or not. These foundational principles are not themselves matters for science to come up with. They are the basis upon which all study and teaching goes forward. They can themselves be studied, refined, articulated. But they are first principles that the educational project needs to assume and accept if it is to begin at all. In this sense, one could say that they are taken on faith. They are intuited or revealed or agreed upon, not as provable by study, but as the necessary condition for study. It's one of those good Aristotelian maxims. If nothing is assumed as true at the beginning, then no line of thought can proceed. The modern secular university is based on its own set of faith dogmas in this sense. According to this reasoning, it is not a faithless place or even a faith-neutral place. Its dogmas are largely those of modern materialist naturalism, which it cannot prove, but rather assumes. Granted, this does not show up as a very robust faith, since it does not have the resources to address the deepest questions of life, the immortal nature of man, the being of God in the invisible world, the fundamental purposes of life. When it comes to such questions, why am I here? Whom am I supposed to love and how? What is the point of life? What is right and wrong? Why should I get up, get up this morning and fight life's battles? When it comes to these questions, universities increasingly do not have the interest or the wherewithal to offer meaningful answers. Our culture notices this and instead turns elsewhere to daytime television, talk radio, or the last best-selling self-help book. Of course, this wasn't always the case. The university arose as an institutional form in the 12th century, as an outgrowth of a society that was hungry for greater knowledge and the greater systematization of knowledge, which assumes as the basis of that knowledge the revealed truths of the Catholic faith. This Christian set of first principles was entirely natural and without some such assumed philosophical basis, universities would never have begun at all. When one speaks of the dialogue between faith and reason in the Catholic university, one means, in using the term faith, a source and repository of genuine knowledge, a source and repository of genuine knowledge, as controversial or as disputed as that might be in the contemporary context. Faith in this sense is not a subjective feeling, not a devotional state. It is a manner of appropriating knowledge that is not otherwise accessible by reason or experimentation. Such things as the nature of God himself, the purpose of God in creating the world, the general movement of history, and therefore the meaning and proper interpretation of an individual life can only be groped at in the dark by reason, but these questions gain clarity through faith. It is like having a new set of eyes that open the mind to key aspects of reality. The Catholic University holds the articles of the Catholic faith to be true because it holds, first, that God is real, second, that God has revealed these truths to humans, and third, that God does not lie. The claims of the truth of the claims of faith are further bolstered by the fact that they make sense of the world when applied to it, 
they work. In a practical sense, they function. These are not unsophisticated assumptions. They have been subjected to great scrutiny over the centuries. The whole discipline of theology is the action of reason upon the data of revelation to determine its cogency, its proper limits, how its various aspects interrelate with one another and with knowledge arrived at in other ways. It is not an exaggeration to say that the Western Christian intellectual tradition is among the deepest and most sophisticated the world has ever known. A necessary condition for such a development is the assumption of workable first principles. These first principles came for the West from Christianity. It is not a historical account widely acknowledged or celebrated, but the whole liberal arts tradition that was first articulated by the Greeks and came into mature form in, the, in Hellenistic Greco-Roman society was not only taken up by the Christians, it was saved by Christianity. That tradition, based on important philosophical principles, but lacking a clear and authoritative set of first principles, had largely played itself out and was on its last legs when it was assumed by the Christians. Christianity provided the needed ballast for the liberal arts tradition to maintain vitality, which it did with great strength through much of the next 2,000 years. That tradition, that tradition first taken up by Benedictine monastics, then by the mendicant orders and the universities, then by the humanists culminating in the Jesuit Ratio Studiorum provided the undergirding for the ideal of the civilization as a whole, the kind of person the civilization understood itself to be forming. Enlightenment thinkers and historians tended to look at the ages of faith as the dark ages, thinking that Christianity corrupted and tainted the purity of the ancient educational ideal, bringing it forward almost accidentally and in diminished form. The opposite is true. Christianity has been the means by which that ideal has been able to survive and thrive for so many centuries. The work of scholars like Christopher Dawson on this topic are of great import. The modern secular university, by abandoning the robust faith that allowed the universities to gain and maintain such potency in Western history, have not only lost that faith, but they are in the way of losing the use of reason as well. When the secular university arose in the late 18th and 19th centuries, I'm thinking about the foundations of the University of Berlin or London or um, the reformulation of the Sorbonne under Napoleon. When this happened, the secular universities were founded and it was believed by their inventors that faith could be set to one side and reason alone would then hold sway. They thought this would bring about a new golden age. They equated faith with superstition and therefore with a kind of blindness. The ironic result has been that reason itself has become reduced and fragile. And in the very strongholds of reason, academia, reason has been attacked and weakened. And this is the oft-noted phenomenon of postmodernity. Blessed John Henry Newman in his time and Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI and ours eloquently note how limited reason becomes when it is deprived of dialogue with faith. Think, for instance, of um, some of the, the least publicized passages from Benedict XVI's address in Regensburg. So one comes back to a basic principle. There is no such thing as a coherent and high-functioning university that is not founded on some kind of faith. This is not a Catholic add-on. It is an intellectual necessity. The modern secular university, by refusing to acknowledge its own faith commitments, has not avoided them, but rather rendered them confusing, incoherent, and exempt from careful consideration. 
In the absence of a clear guiding philosophy, at least two things can be observed. First, some kind of guiding philosophy there must be, but because it is unacknowledged, it functions badly. This is what we currently call political correctness. And second, the main business of the university in the absence of a coherent philosophy of God and man has been to reduce its activities to the search for power. This inevitably leads to an undue accent upon technical education, rid of any clear moral guidelines. Some interesting observations are made about this in a book that came out some years ago now by Harry Lewis, who is the former dean of Harvard College and who published a book called Excellence Without a Soul. This is how he described modern secular education, excellence without a soul. For from the time of the Greeks, it has been understood that intellectual and moral activity run together. The intellect and the will are integrally connected and they can't be divorced. To think well leads to acting rightly. To act wrongly leads to thinking poorly. Hence, education was for the Greeks and later for the Christians and the Jews and the Muslims, both an intellectual and a moral training. Moral because intellectual. Therefore, all intellectual formation is ultimately moral and an intellectual community cannot function without an agreed upon moral order. The question is what moral order will be agreed upon and what is the basis for it? The Catholic University has an obvious, coherent, and honest answer to that question. The modern secular university struggles precisely, precisely in this respect. Both before ex corde, and perhaps somewhat in stronger terms since then, we have faced the claim that a Catholic university is a contradiction in terms because of the commitment to the truths of faith. It is more true to say that the secular university is a contradiction in terms because without a commitment to truths of faith, to first principles unprovable by reason and experimentation, no serious intellectual activity can take place. The enterprise of higher education then loses its potency, its fundamental vitality. As such, the current crisis of secular education is not accidental. Its sources run very, very deep. For this is an intellectual wound. And the modern university tends to manifest itself as an intellectually compromised community. If we might proceed from this line of thought, one consequence is the insight that to construct a Catholic university is not mainly to have lots of extracurricular Catholic things going on. It is rather to found the intellectual project of the university itself on a sound basis, on a coherent philosophy of God and man and nature that will allow each of the disciplines to be fruitful in the broadest sense, not just for acquiring bits of technical knowledge, but for gaining wisdom for the betterment of individual and corporate human life. All the disciplines studied at the university thus spring from an agreed upon set of first principles and all will in various ways be molded by them. In the humanities and the social and medical sciences, the applications are obvious and constant. But even in the natural sciences and mathematics, there is an understanding of the world behind their study that helps direct lines of inquiry and areas of application and leads to an integrated holistic vision of reality. Throughout this past academic year at the University of Mary, we have offered a, a series of four-day formation retreats on the Catholic intellectual tradition for all of our full-time faculty. The faculty of the four schools of the university, the School of Arts and Sciences, the School of Health Sciences, the School of Business, and the School of Education and Behavioral Sciences, all of these faculty have had the opportunity in their turn to step in out from the wind, as it were, with the great texts and with each other. 
Together we have read and wrestled with Ex Corde, along with readings from Blessed John Henry Newman, Alistair McIntyre, James Birchall, Pope Benedict, Pope Francis, T.S. Eliot, John Sr., Walker Percy, Don Briel, and many others. We, we even watch Sister Wendy Beckett together and plan and perform together Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons. The response to this communal, intentional engagement with a coherent vision of truth and education and life has surpassed my best hopes. Catholic and non-Catholic faculty alike experience an encounter with a bracing intellectual vision in which they can participate together and each in his or her own way. It's been wonderfully freeing for our faculty to have this experience because they come to us, of course, with different comprehensions of their responsibilities as instructors and professors at a Catholic university. And some mistakenly believe that it ever so subtly involves the imposition of a police state. <laughs> or there are questions as to what academic freedom really means in such a context. Uh, questions taken up by previous speakers. I, I noticed that His Excellency referred to this as well. How freeing it's been for them to spend time with the actual texts, realizing that it's a great privilege to be at a Catholic university where you can engage with, with such a capacious tradition in which no question is out of order and in which a coherent vision of the world, of God and the human person and nature really sets us free to explore the world outside and the world inside each human person. Robust discussion and debate and consensus about the integration of knowledge and the ultimate complementarity of faith and reason are understood as an effort to strengthen the academy in an essential way, not simply to bolster the Catholic ethos of the university. But of course, the second follows from the first as well. The School of Health Sciences at the University of Mary is our largest. Nursing is a legacy program for us, one of our original two majors when we were founded. And in September, we received a $10 million gift, which will allow us to offer the senior year of nursing for our students for free, tuition free. I'm worried about the camera. They still have to pay room and board. <laughs> It's very funny. Um, when Cardinal Dolan was on our campus last year, Uh, he gave a speech to benefactors of the university in which he noted that our tuition is $14,000 at the University of Mary. And he said, $14,000? He said, that's the cost of a steak and two martinis in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> two of our three doctoral programs are in the health sciences. And there are more than 300 applicants on our waiting list each year for entrance into our physical therapy program. At our Billings campus, we have recently launched the first occupational therapy program in the state of Montana. In order to deepen and ground all of our outreach and instruction and research in the health sciences, we are now in partnership with the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. We are working together to craft and deliver a Master of Science in Bioethics, but the ethicists at the NCBC are also assisting us in ongoing faculty development efforts, providing case-specific consultation for our faculty if they have an individual question or if something comes up in the course of teaching a class or in the course of their own research. And all of the faculty in our School of Health Sciences now receive personal copies of the NCBC's publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. A concerted effort like this, a concerted effort to suffuse a school of health sciences with a Catholic vision of the human person and the human person's relationship to God is not to throw in a bit of arbitrary spiritual content. It is to strengthen the intellectual project, to give it clarity and purpose and direction and animation. And to belabor the point, if a Catholic philosophy, if it isn't a Catholic philosophy, that guides the school, it will be another one. 
probably neither better nor clearer. The University of Mary places a strong accent on hiring for mission, a concern and prior priority we received from our founding sisters and personally passed on to me by my predecessor, Sister Thomas Welder, who served as president of the university for 31 years. When we hire for mission at the University of Mary, we do not intend a process most likely to yield a candidate who is incidentally both Catholic and happily possessed of the skills and expertise we seek. In fact, it, 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 it is not unusual that the best candidate for mission is not among the Catholic candidates for a particular position. We are ever looking for those with the capacity and willingness to grasp an integrated vision, who understand their lives and their work in the context of the great and human search for truth, who sense that there is a mystery which runs beneath all things. I do not mean this to be vague or somehow poetic. I mean that such capacities, that imaginative quality that we look for in the most successful of the candidates for positions, especially in the academy, I mean that those qualities, these capacities are necessary to do scholarly work at all and to participate meaningfully in our mission as a Catholic university. It's taken quite a lot of discussion on our campus for this to be fully understood, that we're not simply doing religious profiling, that we want to look and see if the person has a soul which is active. Now, of course, you can't see that, but there's so much which is revealed in intentional conversations to see if the person understands that their lives are not about them. If they're looking to participate in something more noble and more expansive than their own personal academic project. This is very important. And so I, I wrote here at the end, Probably Dr. Healy will help with the uh, precision. But I say praying the rosary and mixing chemicals are perfectly admirable skills. But having them both does not a scholar make. It's not enough. Now, of course, if you can find a Dr. Sanford, if you can come up with someone who's both a scholar with that integration, well, then you hire them. But it's not enough simply to say, is this person devotional? And also, are they very skilled in their subject matter? We're looking for something integrative. Otherwise, we're not serving our students well. Sometimes, sometimes um, a, a believing and sincere Christian who's not Catholic can bring very much more than some of the Catholic candidates that we experience. Anyway. Those are some examples of the intellectual project. But to go in somewhat of a different direction, if faith and reason are intimately connected, and if the intellect and the will are inseparable in education, then in addition to a clear guiding philosophy for the intellectual project of the university, there will need to be a concern for the proper intellectual, moral, and spiritual environment to be fostered such that the formation of the university the formation the university provides can rightly take root in the lives of faculty and students. Excorte gets at this by speaking so much about the university as a Catholic community. A Catholic university is not just an institution doing its neutral thing and mainly populated by Catholics, like a Walmart that might happen in a given town to have a majority of Catholic workers or shoppers. You see, this is connected to what I was saying earlier. A Catholic university is an intentionally Catholic community, a moral and spiritual as well as an intellectual community. This is what gives it so much potency for the transformation of those who enter it, and so much possibility as a source of creativity and life for the wider society. Practically speaking, this means things like good living arrangements, opportunities for prayer and service, an atmosphere that encourages genuine friendship, and creative ways of keeping youthful passions from burning the place down. 
All of this is not, all of this is not as in the parlance of the modern secular university, a matter of maximizing health and averting risk, a matter of what they call wellness. It is part of the intellectual project appropriate to the university. A good deal of ingenuity is necessary to do this well. One thinks of the household system here at Franciscan University, or one thinks of your campus in Gaming in Austria, now in operation for more than 20 years. At the University of Mary, we have a thriving Catholic studies program envisioned not simply as a curricular project, but as an apostolic endeavor. We have discernment residence halls for men and women with the diocesan vocation director in residence with the men and two Benedictine sisters living with the women. Cardinal Dolan was on campus last year to bless our new pub, Chesterton's, which affords us the much needed opportunity to engage our students on questions of alcohol, virtue, and culture. It makes me thirsty. <laughs> Our campus in, in Rome, in the Eternal City, is now in its fifth year of operation, and our new campus in Peru just launched with a small group of students this semester. In an intentional effort to build deeper engagements between the academy and the pastoral work of campus ministry, we've hired Dr. Peter Huff, a well-published academic and a skillful professor, as our director of campus ministry with a joint appointment in the School of Arts and Sciences. And there would be more to say, but I only mean to note that such efforts, in evidence at many Catholic colleges across the nation, require a particular kind of thinking to conceive of them and to sustain them. Some thoughts about recent history here might not be amiss. For the last 50 years or so, Catholic institutions of higher education have more or less followed the wider societal pattern with not much resistance in most cases. Catholic educators themselves subscribe to the reduced view of reason promoted by the secular academy. Nothing is real knowledge except what can be proven rationally or demonstrated experimentally. And so they tended to find their Catholic commitments burdensome and annoying and liable to lose them prestige among the upper echelons of American universities. They viewed their Catholicism as largely an impediment, one that they wanted to minimize without abandoning altogether. The result was to excuse the Catholic philosophical vision from the classroom entirely and to claim Catholicity through campus ministry or other extracurriculars. This is largely proven enervating for such institutions, both as regards their Catholicity and as regards their intellectual coherence and excellence. Catholic universities would risk being third-rate secular schools rather than aspiring to be first-rate Catholic ones. A way forward would be to see that Catholicity is a terrific advantage for our institutions, specifically as intellectual projects. The goal should not be to minimize or explain away the Catholic element. It is rather to use it as the great advantage it is and to find the right balance of elements that will allow the greatest genuine intellectual creativity and therefore the greatest human benefit. There's no question of saying, do we want to be an academically sound institution or rather one that is spiritually vital and safe? A genuinely Catholic ethos should naturally tend to both of these excellences and at the same time. Rather than having a dichotomy between highly technically effective programs imbued by secular models of thought side by side with a strong devotional community gathered around non-intellectual activities, a true Catholic project will see the invigorated Catholic mind involved in the various disciplines understood coherently naturally reacting on ways of living and worshiping, but doing so with creativity rather than with simple conformity, and a spiritual communion constantly fertilized and enhanced by serious Catholic thinking. Such an environment tends to have its own formative effects 
on both students and faculty. Secular universities in our country have largely abandoned the true intellectual task, and as a result have grown intellectually as well as socially and spiritually decadent. They're generally good at one thing, teaching techniques. They're not places to become wise or good or whole or more mature or even intelligent, except in rather narrow ways. Quite the opposite. A student is lucky if he or she hasn't been seriously wounded as a human after four years in such an experience. Catholic universities thus have a particular role to play, certainly for our own students and communities, but also for the wider academic world, to keep alive a 2,500-year-old liberal tra tradition that has been so productive of so much excellence, but which is now in danger of disappearing. Such an effort, if we engage in it, and if we engage in it well, such an effort is unlikely to bring applause from the wider academic world. There may be a price to pay along the way. In fact, we already see some of that, and that's only likely to intensify. But it is a noble and much-needed service, this diaconia of truth. For America, this is the Catholic University moment. At least if our universities don't rise to the challenge, it isn't clear who could or would. Thank you. And um, I want to um, first thank Monsignor Shea for coming to Ohio from North Dakota via New York in the dead of winter to enliven our conference and for your very serious and enlightening reflections. Let me note parenthetically that his becoming president in 2009 at age 34 was the same age Father Michael was when he began his presidency in 1974 at Steubenville. Perhaps young, young blood brings dynamic changes. So live long and prosper. <laughs> May you be president for the next quarter century, as was Father Michael. Now, I have four thoughts, uh, reflections on the talk. A couple of points to reinforce, a couple to expand on with perhaps some continuation of earlier discussions as well. First, the whole notion of an organic interpenetrating unity to the intellectual and religious life on campus is a very important concept. There should be no mere toleration of the one for the other, much less ridicule or dismissal of either for the other. Rather, both have to be vibrant in their own sphere and inclusive of the other in a mutual indwelling. This cannot be taught abstractly. It has to be modeled and lived, especially by the faculty, on behalf of the students. Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman's famous description from his sermon, Intellect, the Instrument of Religious Training, is apropos here. And my conscience won't let me do anything else but read the whole paragraph. I just can't chop up a Newman paragraph into little bits. He says, Here then I conceive is the object of the Holy See and the Catholic Church in setting up universities. It is to reunite things which were in the beginning joined together by God and have been put asunder by man. Some persons will say that I'm thinking of confining, distorting, and stunting the growth of the intellect by ecclesiastical supervision. I have no such thought, nor have I any thought of a compromise as if religion must give up something and science something. I wish the intellect to range with the utmost freedom and religion to enjoy an equal freedom. But what I am stipulating for is that they should be found in one and the same place and exemplified in the same persons. I want to destroy that diversity of centers which puts everything into confusion by creating a contrariety of influences. I wish the same spots and the same individuals to be at once oracles of philosophy and shrines of devotion. It will not satisfy me, what satisfies so many, to have two independent systems, intellectual and religious, 
going at once side by side by a sort of division of labor and only accidentally brought together. It will not satisfy me if religion is here and science there, and young men converse with science all day and lodge with religion in the evening. It is not touching the evil to which these remarks have been directed if young men eat and drink and sleep in one place and think in another. I want the same roof to contain both the intellectual and the moral discipline. Devotion is not a sort of finish given to the sciences, nor is science a sort of feather in the cap, if I may so express myself, an ornament and set off to devotion. I want the intellectual layman to be religious and the devout ecclesiastic to be intellectual. Now the quote actually doesn't end there, though it's often cut off there. He goes on, and you'll have to pardon the politically incorrect term in the last sentence. Sanctity has its influence. Intellect has its influence. The influence of sanctity is the greater in the long run. The influence of intellect is greater at the moment. Therefore, in the case of the young whose education lasts a few years, where the intellect is, there is the influence. Their literary, their scientific teachers really have the forming of them. Let both influences act freely, and then as a general rule, no system of mere religious guardianship which neglects the reason will in matter of fact succeed against the school. Youths need a masculine religion if it is to ca carry captive their restless imaginations and their wild intellects, as well as to touch their susceptible hearts. In other words, religion on campus cannot be pushed off into a remote corner, nor be an embarrassment up in the attic. It cannot be passive or timid. Rather, religion, faith, Catholicism must be a powerful force on campus carrying the expectation that it be lived, not just discussed and questioned. Father Michael Scanlon helped make it so at Steubenville by many concrete steps. For example, bringing in the powerful presence of the charismatic renewal and the covenant community on campus. Controversial, yes. Effective, yes or inviting in associated organizations whose raison d'etre was evangelization and giving them room and presence on campus, affecting the atmosphere. Or again, instituting households as avenues for service, socialization, athletics, intellectual support, and of course, as prayer groups. All students were initially required to join a household prayer group Later, after the system was established, it became optional. Bold, yes. Controversial, yes. Effective, yes. These kinds of things have to be done. Evangelization is not the direct role of the theology department, but it is part of the obligation of the university overall. The Catholic presence on campus cannot be reduced to a small office alongside the chapel or it will not have the strength and the power to fulfill its mission. Secondly, on the other hand, it is equally true that a robust intellectual life with its own sources, its own prerogatives, its own power must be present on campus in full array. We are primarily a university and not a retreat house. Here, Monsignor Shea points out, as universities were born from the heart of the church, such a powerful presence of reason is not only compatible with faith, but in deep affinity with faith, born from the faith. He points out that the first principles, the fundamental assumptions behind the true Catholic university are clear and consistent, opening doors toward honest inquiry and debate. While the fundamental assumptions behind the modern secular university that is a reductionistic materialism and naturalism are unproven, often unacknowledged and confused, opening the door toward an anti-intellectual oppression of certain points of view via political correctness 
if the foundations cannot be defended. I would only add a, a point of further clarification here. Monsignor Shea speaks at times of, quote, assuming something as true, unquote, in order to have a starting point, of assuming certain first principles so that one can go forward. At other times, however, he speaks of truth and knowledge. So for instance, he says the true meaning of faith is as a source and repository of genuine knowledge. I think this latter aspect must be emphasized. It, it cannot just be a question of assuming, even if the assuming is of things more consciously consistent rather than confused and unconscious. Rather, fundamental to the dignity of reason, to the raison d'etre of the university, to the founding of the original schools of philosophy by Plato and Aristotle, is the breakthrough to truth. Aristotle's principle of non-contradiction is no mere assumption, not even just a necessary assumption, but an incontrovertible foundational truth that can be known by insight and understanding. Parenthetically, I think language is important here. I would not describe this as just making a truth claim. Every proposition does that by its very structure. But really seeing something true and even necessarily true, uh, that's the boldness of what the breakthrough to truth involves. Similarly, the truths of the faith are no mere consistent assumptions, but revealed truths with all the standing and dignity of truth. As John Paul II says in his great encyclical on the topic, Fides and Ratio, as quoted previously, faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth, but it's truth which is broken through to. And so rational insight must have its powerful place alongside revelation. Of course, Monsignor Shea, uh, speaks of truth and knowledge, as I indicated, and we must do so. Uh, if we leave things on the level of competing assumptions, we capitulate to a type of fideism. I think we deny reason its due. And this is what would bring religious institutions into disrepute in the academic realm, what would lead to calling a Catholic university a contradiction in terms. Again, as John Paul II says in Fides et Ratio, quote, although times change and knowledge increases, it is possible to discern a core of philosophical insight within the history of thought as a whole. Consider, for example, the principles of non-contradiction, of finality, of causality, as well as the concept of the person as a free and intelligent subject with the capacity to know God, truth, and goodness. Consider as well certain fundamental moral norms that are shared by all. These are among the indications that beyond different schools of thought, there exists a body of knowledge which may be judged a kind of spiritual heritage of humanity. And so, to paraphrase Newman, youths also need a powerful dose of reason if it is to carry captive their restless imaginations and their wild intellects, as well as to touch their susceptible hearts. Um, they, they don't need an apologetic retreat in the direction of relativism or skepticism, nor mere competing assumptions. Indeed, reason can even reach to the highest, to some knowledge of the divine. As Pope Benedict emphasized in his Regensburg lecture in 2006, arguing against fideism as open to dangerous extremes and fanaticism, quote, John began the prologue of his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the logos. God acts with logos. Logos means both reason and word. Therefore, not to act in accordance with reason is contrary to God's nature. And he goes on to unfold the idea that due to the analogy of being and to the gift of reason and God as logos, we can even know something of God's nature. Benedict concludes, 
quote, God does not become more divine when we push him away from us in a sheer impenetrable voluntarism. Rather, the truly divine God is the God who has revealed himself as Logos. This is the confidence which the church has in reason, which the Catholic University has in reason, that it can tell us real truths, though partial, not only about man and the world, but even about God. As Monsignor Shea points out, the modern secular university has lost not only faith, but even a basic confidence in reason. In support of this contention, I remember at the time Fides et Ratio was issued, that even the astute religious editors at Time Magazine, or it might have been the New York Times, not much difference, noticed the irony of the church issuing an encyclical in defense of reason. And if they noticed it, then the loss of confidence in reason must be a real problem. Third point, a third major point to highlight. Monsignor points out that to act wrongly leads to thinking poorly. Very true, at least as soon as you get away from pure abstractions. Already Aristotle says that the good man knows more about good and even more about evil than the evil man does. So you go to a good man for moral advice. I tell my ethics classes, if you get into a moral dilemma, you go to a Franciscan, not the head of the local mafia. But if all this is true, then we have a vast expansion of responsibility for the university, the moral and religious atmosphere of the campus, the dormitories, etc. Newman says it will not do if young men converse with science all day and lodge with religion in the evening, but neither will it do if they converse with the great ideas all day and lodge with hedonism in the evening. As Monsignor Shea says, practically speaking, this means, quote, good living arrangements, opportunity for prayer and service, an atmosphere that encourages genuine friendship, and my favorite line, creative ways of keeping youthful passions from burning the place down. A Catholic university, in other words, must see the interpenetrating areas of student life and campus ministry as part of its educational mission Resources must be allocated for the purpose, not just words. Student life personnel must be regarded neither as babysitters nor disciplinarians, but primarily as leaders in the Christian life and exemplars of Christian communion and community. Hiring must be done with this in mind. As Monsignor points out, however, hiring for mission is a subtle challenge. To find the candidate who can be a personal presence in loving concern, and that's not always the most outspokenly Catholic candidate, nor the one who sees himself as the best preacher. Faith, hope, and love are spread primarily by being lived and modeled, not just talked about. In conclusion, as a fourth reflection, I would emphasize that the guiding mission statement of the university and the way it penetrates to faculty, staff, and students is extremely important. Monsignor gave examples of the penetration of Catholic values into the atmosphere of the University of Mary, studying together the Catholic intellectual tradition and great texts, moral foundations to their medical programs, hiring for mission, providing good living arrangements, their own campus, etc. However, alongside such fecundating values dimensions of campus life, all of which could be seen to fit with the Land O'Lakes document uh, as, you know, a living presence on campus, I believe more is necessary, especially in this day of increasing threat of imposition of secular values on Catholic institutions by government. I think the mission statement has to be more clear and explicit. It's not enough to, quote, rejoice in our Catholic heritage, unquote, or cherish our Jesuit identity, unquote, or whatever else. These phrases, laudable as they might be, say nothing of obedience and authority. Therefore, when the state comes and says with authority, 
that you must be obedient to our decrees about paying for abortions in your health plan or that you're guilty of a hate crime if you teach the traditional understanding of marriage, you're in a very weak position if all you can say is, that's not what we rejoice in or that's not part of our heritage. When Father Michael redid the mission statement, communally to be sure, but under direction, at Franciscan U, he was more explicit. As a publicly identified Catholic and Franciscan institution, we now say in our mission statement, quote, the university is thereby committed to being truly Catholic in its full submission to the teaching authority of the Catholic Church, thereby teaching as true what that teaching authority teaches as true, rejecting all propositions contrary to those truths, and promoting thereby all the truths of revelation, whether found in scripture or tradition as taught by the Catholic Church. Which of course does not mean that theologians can't creatively speculate and question. But this statement of mission says a lot more than just that we have respect for our Catholic heritage or we rejoice in our Jesuit tradition or whatever it might be. With recent threatening actions from the executive and judicial branches in Washington on the table, even this clear expression may not be respected by our federal government, but it's much stronger as an argument, that is, being under authority and even under solemn oath, rather than uh, standing behind general statements about what we cherish. This involves an appropriate and nuanced commitment to obedience. Elsewhere in the mission statement, it says, quote, while always allowing for the development of the church understanding of revelation. Plus, as we said above, the proper role of reason must be acknowledged. So it's, it's never a blind obedience. But out of this commitment to obedience arises the call from Excordia Ecclesiae for teachers of theology and those disciplines closely linked with it to take the oath of fidelity and profession of faith. This too may need to be explained to the world, but it's a tremendous and honest witness, as well as a defense against outside intrusion and forced submission to secular authorities. We're saying we take our commitment to truth seriously as an obligation, including revealed truth. In this respect, the Land O'Lakes document once regarded as so pro progressive, is looking like it has clay feet. Universities will come under outside secular authority in the current climate, and their best defense against this government intrusion might be, even if only in self-preservation, to crawl embarrassedly back under the much more benevolent authority of the church if they can't do it with their heads held high. It is a much more powerful situation for one's defense, you lawyers can tell me if I'm wrong, to object to the state trying to force me or my university to betray a solemn religious oath rather than to just try to defend myself on the basis of a vague adherence to a cherished heritage. So we are in a post-Land O'Lakes context now. I don't think Father Hesburgh ever expected in 1967 how oppressive the federal government was going to get. Catholic universities, which have declared their independence from the church, will have a choice. Let the church welcome you back with open arms and fatherly care, including some authority, or be forced to ever more deeply betray your supposedly cherished Catholic heritage. My alma mater, Loyola Los Angeles, has now capitulated to the state of California and will actively pay for all abortions in its health plan. I haven't seen any headlines to the same effect about Thomas Aquinas College, though they both operate in the same state. Now, I didn't send my kids to TAC, I sent them here, except for one who wanted to play football at Mount Union, but in any case. Uh, still, in terms of relation to the church, uh, Loyola, you see, as an institution, cannot really defend itself under the freedom of religion clause. 
It has proudly declared its independence from the church, at least or especially from church authority. Thomas Aquinas College, on the other hand, self-insures under the Rita Trust, a self-funded benefit trust that provides only those benefits that are, quote, in compliance with the ethical and religious directives for the Catholic health care services published by the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, unquote. In other words, they are a part of the church and under its authority. Therefore, a federal judge ruled that Obamacare cannot, quote, compel the organization to take affirmative steps to do something that is in conflict with the tenets of its faith, unquote. So to all you modern Catholic colleges out there, welcome home, I hope, for your own sakes. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.